from Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, we ask... That our time today together as this church body, as the body of Christ gathered in your name, would be fruitful toward the end of being shaped and formed to love you so that you would be our first love afresh again today. We ask that you would teach us through this parable, through Jesus speaking this parable to us today through your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would instruct us for how you might continue to increasingly be the first love so we would not just benefit from your things and the enjoyments 
of the things that you give us and our blessings here on earth. But, Father, we would continue to be shaped more and more like you. That we would just not want the benefits of, of being called a follower, but that, Father, we would want you. We ask that you would do this because of our time together today in the Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, keep your uh, thumb there for just a second. We'll come back to it. In Luke 15, we're pretty much going to camp out there today. We'll look at Romans 1 for just a second at the beginning, but we'll pretty much camp out in Luke 15 today. Uh, we're going to, just for a minute, we're going to look at Romans 1.25 uh, before we get back into Luke. Um, so if you want to look that up, you can. There are no outlines or handouts today because, well, I had a busy week, sorry. <laughs> there are no handouts and outlines today. Um, I'll tell you what the, the main points are as we go along. Um, what we're basically going to do today is focus on the younger brother and his request to give me my share. There's, there's one translation of Scripture that just plain says, give me my share. So that's kind of the, the, the focus today for us is the, uh, the younger brother and, and the father's response to that younger brother. Uh, last week we started this series. It's called The Prodigal God. We know this uh, Luke 15 story as something that's primarily focused on this younger son that we've read about today. The younger son who we call the prodigal son. But we want, we want to recapture that word prodigal and sort of infuse it with the idea that, that really what's going on here in this, this parable that Jesus tells is that the prodigal person is God. He's the prodigal one because he is so lavish, luxurious, beyond our best thoughts of how grace comes to us and love and mercy come to us, that, that, we, that we could fittingly call him prodigal. He's the one who gives it all away. So that's kind of our focus today. You ever had somebody approach you and say this? I know I have because um, I'm kind of a punk. Um, they approach you in the middle of sort of a, a heated situation or you hear somebody else say, you know what your problem is? I'm sure none of you have ever had that. <laughs> um, I've had that a few times, uh, mostly from my mom and dad, pretty much. Um, you know what your problem is? Augustine, the early church father, he, he lived about 350 uh, B.C. Uh, for about 75 years. He lived in the 4th century mostly. St. Augustine knows what our problem is. And this concept that I want to talk about for just a second here, is our problem is a problem of what he calls disordered loves. If you're taking notes, that would be a good one. I'll tell you what that means here in just a second. Augustine thinks he knows what your problem is, <laughs> and mine. Disordered loves. That's what he calls it. He claimed, Augustine claimed, that we are people whose sin creates in us a vacuum creates in us a vacuum, a hole in our lives. And we attempt to fill that hole with a raft of disordered loves. Many of you have probably heard of the God-shaped vacuum, or the God-shaped hole in, in, in our lives. That's what happens when sin is a part of our lives. That God-shaped hole is something that Augustine says, we fill with a disordered love. In other words, we fill our holes, our God-shaped vacuums, with anything that we love instead of God himself. A disordered love is anything that we love instead of God himself. First in priority beyond, uh, instead of God. Uh, you get the gist. Romans, the first chapter, 
Romans 1.25 talks about this God-shaped vacuum. In the, in the first chapter of Romans, on the 25th verse, it says this. Uh, let me read 24 uh, as a context coming into it. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 25. Because they, meaning us, sinners, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So that God-shaped vacuum and hole in our lives that we fill with everything else is something that we fill with things we worship and love in the created order instead of God. Now, it doesn't have to just be materialistic things. It doesn't just have to be creation itself. It can be a whole host of other kinds of things like pride and greed and envy and those, those things that we hold up and worship sometimes instead of God. There's one version that translates translate this Romans 1 passage as saying this. We traded the true God for a fake God. And we worshiped the God we made instead of the God who made us. So Augustine and, and Scripture and, and I propose today that our loves, disordered or correctly ordered, make us who we are. This is one of the key things that's going on with this younger brother and this elder brother here in this story in Luke 15. Our loves, whether disordered or ordered correctly, make us who we are. Our internal selves will eventually be externalized. The values we have on the inside will eventually make us on the outside. And what we love will become manifest and made known. Let me tell you what I mean. I was there last Monday of this week, sitting there at uh, Starbucks in Johnson City, because I had a meeting in the morning. And so I went to that meeting, and I sat at Starbucks in Johnson City, thinking about disordered loves. Yes, your preacher is a nerd. I was sitting there in, August, in, uh, in Starbucks in Johnson City, thinking about this Augustinian concept of disordered loves. And I'm thinking, what am I seeing around me that are examples of disordered loves? So in the drive-thru, I kid you not, in the span of about two minutes, there was a Jaguar, a Range Rover, and a Cadillac Escalade. They all had to be top of the line because they were brand new. Sorry if you drive any of those cars. Um, hey, I drive a Range Rover. Um, so in the span of about two minutes, these three ridiculously cool cars come through the drive-thru. And I'm thinking to myself, I wonder how much those cost. Brand new, they average $70,000 plus. For purposes of comparison, my van cost us $750. <laughs> and you can tell it, by the way, yes. I live by the philosophy that the best way to make your old car run better is to realize how much a new one costs. You know, maybe these people got great deals, you know, maybe they won them in a contest, who knows. Uh, I also see, just a couple minutes later, uh, a lady in her mid-50s walk into uh, the coffee shop there. And she's, she's obviously, um, sorry about this, but she's obviously trying to take 30 years off of her, of her age, which, you know, is okay. She walks in with tons of makeup, sort of encrusted all over her face. Uh, she had a $100 a a hairdo, uh, a fancy business suit, four-inch heels. Uh, she's, she's carrying her $5 latte, which, of course, was you know, skim milk, no whip, no foam, for those of you who know what I mean. 
And so I'm sitting there looking at her, and I think, you know, I, I wonder how much it costs for her to put together that outfit today. Being the nerd I am, I search online, I look at Talbot's, and I, and I, and I figure out how much a, a business suit of that type, type costs. Business suit and some heels and, and a hairdo like that. I look on uh, Johnson City Salon, see how much they cost. Conservatively, that woman's outfit had to cost 450 to $500. <clears throat> because I found the exact one she was wearing in Talbot's. It's, it's a fancy one. Now, now, don't get me wrong first. Hear, hear what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. There's nothing wrong with having nice things made of good quality materials. Sometimes, in fact, as I know with our cars, it's a lot better. There's nothing inherently wrong with owning nice cars or looking good. We don't want Christians you know, coming out of here just trying to you know, drive junker cars or intentionally try to look ugly. That's, that's not the point. But disordered loves are real. Because in a world, for example, where over 15,000 children per day die of starvation from hunger, and it only costs just more than 21 cents a day to feed one child, and we drive cars that cost $70,000 plus, do you think disordered loves are real? Far more than even me and you and all of us may be aware. The things on the outside sometimes are these gleaming, showcased Hollywood versions of ourselves that we want people to think we are and our internal values will become external. And we see in the evidence, for example, of materialism all around us, that we worship and we serve sometimes the creature, the created things, rather than, or at least more than, the creator himself. We don't need to look far for evidence of this. Just look at our cars, our clothes, our houses, our stomachs. Our disordered loves create problems. And it's not just these material things. It's achievement it's pride, it's, it's selfishness, it's anything and everything that, correct, that replaces correctly ordered love and worship of God. Now the two sons in this parable that we've just read have this problem, like we do, of disordered loves. But they're just from different vantage points. You see, they both want the father's things, they want the benefits of being his son, but they don't really want the Father. They both want certain things and the benefits of being a son, but the character and the nature and the love and the mercy and the grace that the Father demonstrates to these sons functionally in this story, they say, nah, you can keep it. Let's start in verse 11 here. We want to look here at this first point at the meaning of the request of the younger son. The meaning of the request. We're going to look at verses 11 and 12 mostly here. And we're going to focus on that phrase, give me my share, and what that, mean, what that meant here. 
Let me reread uh, those first couple verses there, 11 and 12. Uh, and he said, this is he meaning Jesus. If you'll remember from last week, he's, he's speaking to a bunch of people, and he told the parable of the lost sheep and the coin. And he's speaking especially to the religious establishment, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the scribes who were around him. This is Jesus speaking. He said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, the younger son's request uh, was a stunning request. Because the inheritance, of course, was not divided up and distributed to the children until the father died. So think about what's going on here. In Middle Eastern culture at the time here, to ask for the inheritance while the father is alive is functionally to wish him dead. So that kind of request from the younger son would have been a disgrace to the family name because the younger son's extraordinary disrespect for his father. It would have been a blow also to the economic standing of the family since his father would immediately have to go ahead and sell off part of his estate in order to give him his share. So in short, this this request, this request ripped the family apart. It was a relational and an economic act of violence, in a sense, against the family's integrity. Now, why? why make a request like that? Because the younger son suffered from a disordered love. You see... Correctly ordered loves are the good things that derive from the character and nature of God. Truth and goodness and beauty and mercy and love. Kindness, gentleness. Disordered loves happen when we don't really, we don't really want that kindness and mercy. I mean, think of what our lives would look like if those kinds of virtues from the character and nature of God were our primary thing after which we went with our time and our efforts and our money, think of what different kinds of people we would be. But this younger son is just like us. Our hearts, like his, are distorted by disordered loves. We love, we we rest our hearts in, we look to things that give us joy and meaning in things that only come from God, and yet we look for them in different places. So, the younger son may have lived with his father, may have even obeyed his father, but it's obvious he didn't love his father. The thing he loved ultimately was the father's things and not his father. His heart was set on the wealth and the comfort and the freedom and the status that wealth brings. His father was just a means to an end for him. But now, however, the younger son, his patience is over. And he knew, he knew that kind of request would be like a knife to his father's heart. But he obviously didn't care. Here's a great irony which we'll return to later in the series. The irony is that the two sons, they they look very different on the surface. One runs off and lives what we call the prodigal life, lives a, a dissolute life. Yet one stays home and obeys and serves his father. 
But as we'll return to next week especially, what we see in the end is that the older son is furious with the father, humiliates him by refusing to go into the father's feast. That's the older son's way of saying that he will not live in the same family where a younger son is like that is tolerated. So again, younger, older. The family's integrity and the father's heart are under assault, this time by the elder brother. Why? Because of this. The elder brother objects to the expense of what the father is doing, as we will see later on especially. He shows that he has been obeying the father to get his things, like we talked about with the younger son, and not because he loves him, because he's willing to put the father to shame. Both the older and the younger sons love the father's things, but not the father. Let's look at the response to the request, the response of the father to the request of the younger son especially. We'll also look at the, uh, request, the response of the request at the end. We're going to look at 12b especially here, uh, verse 12, and then 20 through 24. Uh, verse 12 first, and then 20 through 24. Uh, verse 12 says this, The younger of them, the younger son, said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided, that is the father, he divided his property between them. The other part of the father's response comes in 20 through 24, toward the end here. Uh, In verse 20 it says, He arose and came to his father. He there is the older son. He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, this is his response, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. The younger son's request to the father would have shocked Jesus' listeners. But the father's response is even more remarkable. This was a patriarchal society in which you were required to show deference and reverence to anyone older than you, especially one's father. This kind of contempt and insolence from the older brother would have ordinarily been met with outrage. The listeners would have expected the father to explode in wrath on the older son, to drive the son out of his family and his home with blows, stoning is known to happen for requests like this and responses like this. Instead, we read the simple words, so he divided his property between them. We need to put ourselves in this historical context. In those days, most of a family's wealth was in their land and their property. Indeed, their family land was a very large part of their identity. It's likely that the father had to sell some of his land in order to become liquid and give his younger son his share. This is reflected in the unusual Greek word that's used here in verse 12, where it says he divided his property between them. That word property there is bios. That word property is life. Literally, 
It's saying he divided his life between the two sons. In other words, it was a way to convey what it felt like for the father to lose his land, his family's good name and status, and the presence of one of his two sons. The father is being asked here to tear his very life apart, and he does. That's the scandal. That's the prodigal part of God's grace here. He freely, quietly, humbly, and matter-of-factly does so. Look at verse 20 for a second. It says, His father saw him. His father saw him. Meaning the father was looking. The father was watching for this son to return. Verse 20 says, He ran and embraced and kissed him. Patriarchs, fathers like this, they don't run. They don't run in that society because it requires them to gather up their clothes and show their bare legs and and that was disrespectful and only young boys would do something like that. So the older son and, and anyone else in the community who would have thought that the father's response here would have thought that the father's response was foolish. But looking back, this side of the cross, we know better. Think, for example, for a moment, if the father had become embittered, like I think you know, many of us would feel about that kind of situation. Perhaps he had beaten the young man or done something else severe to him or not been deferential to the older son. Do you think restoration would have happened in that family? Oh, sure, maybe. You see, what happens here in the story is that by bearing the agony and the pain of the son's sins himself, instead of exacting revenge, instead of paying the son back by inflicting pain on him, the father keeps the door open in the relationship. The father was willing to suffer for the sin of the child so that someday reconciliation would be possible. So what difference does this prodigal God make for us? First, I think it means that whether we are uh, irreligious, freewheeling, younger brother types, or we are moral, religious, elder brother types, we have a problem with these disordered loves, this inordinate love and idols of the heart. For example, imagine a wife who has a husband who spends hours with another woman talking about all his or her problems. And he goes and travels with this other woman and talks and thinks about her. The wife confronts her husband and says, what's the problem? I married you, didn't I? I pay the mortgage. I'm sorry. The wife confronts the husband and he says, "What? let me start over. Let me start over. There's a wife who has a husband. He's having an emotional affair. That's the long story short. So the wife confronts her husband and says, he says, what's the problem? I married you. I pay the mortgage. I do all my fatherly duties. If someone asks you, who is my wife? I say, you are my wife. Why are you upset? The wife will rightly say that someone else has captured his heart. Many of us are sometimes like that elder brother who we'll talk about more next week. We may obey the rules. 
But sometimes our real heart and our passion is, is something else. Our career, making money, peer acceptance. If anything has a controlling position in our heart, if, if anything is more important to us than our happiness in the Lord, then that thing is a God to us. It's an inordinate love. It's a disordering of loves. Recognize these things for what they are. Do you see them in your own heart and life? If you do, what do you do about that? The answer to that kind of question can be pretty easy. When we name and recognize the things we hold as idols instead of God himself and taking on his character and nature. Another thing I think it means for us is that our Lord has done for us what the Father in this parable did for his Son. When God came to the world, we would have expected him to come in wrath, to appear and to drive us out with blows, but he did not. He didn't come with a sword in his hand, but nails in his hands. He didn't come to bring judgment, but to bear our judgment. Jesus went to the cross in weakness. And voluntarily, his life, like the Father's, was literally torn apart. There is nothing more beautiful in all of reality than the picture of a perfectly happy, infinite being leaving all of the bliss of heaven and sacrificing everything for the sake of rebellious, undeserving, and ungrateful people. Nothing. The more you look at the Lord, at Jesus doing that for us, the more you will love him above anyone or anything else. And he will be the one that captures our hearts so that nothing else matters. I want to close with a little illustration here. It's about barbecue, one of my favorite topics. Being from the South, um, you, you, you know that ribs and barbecue are a big deal. <laughs> I was thinking about Ridgewood you know, barbecue off in uh, Carter County and thinking about this. I remember hearing about a particular restaurant that had amazing ribs. And so uh, some friends and I went to that place. And uh, if you've ever had something like this happen to you, um, I, I know you'll, you'll identify with this experience. Uh, the place was packed. The food was great. It was all-you-can-eat rib night. And, and rib bones were, were piling up as fast as the line to get in. And, of course, eating ribs, is, eating ribs is messy business. Barbecue sauce gets on your face and your fingers and your clothes. And dirty napkins pile up next to half-eaten bowls of baked beans and coleslaw. Because you've got to eat the good stuff. Let the beans and coleslaw go. <clears throat> when our crew, who had gone to, to eat together, had eaten all we could, we paid our tab and we <laughs> sort of waddled out to the car. That's when I reached into my pocket for my keys, and I came up with nothing but lint. Starting to panic, I looked through the window at the ignition, hoping I had locked the keys in the car, maybe, because in the back of my mind, um, a more disgusting possibility was taking shape. 
when I saw that the ignition was empty, I knew exactly where my keys were. The keys to my house, my car, my office. Seconds earlier, I remembered that those precious keys had slid right off of my tray and followed half-eaten corn cob and several bones to the bottom of a trash can. I'd thrown away my keys on all-you-can-eat rib night. (laughs) It was a long walk home. My friends certainly weren't going to do my dirty work for me. Uh, So I dove in. Fishing through bones and beans and barbecue, corn and coleslaw and a host of saliva-soaked napkins. (laughs) They're down here saying, stop! A sort of shiny layer of trash can slime had coated my arms uh, before I finally grasped hold of those precious keys. As we think about what God has done for us, I sometimes think about him as a sort of a dumpster diving God. I don't mean any disrespect by calling him that. In in fact, on the contrary, how can we not have a soaring admiration for the infinite, perfect, holy God who left a pristine, sinless heaven to search through the filth and the rubbish of our sin? Friends, because we serve a God who is like a father, looking out for us and running to us, his lost sons, in order to embrace us and to kiss us, how can we do anything but love him and obey him? Friends, we often go through life as if his acceptance of us is dependent upon us obeying. But the reality of the Christian life is that our obedience is the result of his acceptance. We obey because he has accepted us, and we love because he's accepted us. And this this dumpster diving God comes to us and treats us like a father coming after his lost son. We are all lost sons in ways that sometimes we're not even aware. We want to invite you as part of our service of worship here today to be those people who accept what God has done for us. We'd like to invite you, if you're looking for a church home and you're a baptized believer in Christ, we'd love for you to come forward in just a moment here. Or if you'd like to name Christ publicly for the first time, we'd ask that you would come forward as we stand in just a moment to sing.